Welcome to the B2B Category Creators Podcast, hosted by Gil Alouche, founder and CEO of Metadata.io. This podcast is all about sharing the real and sometimes uncomfortable secrets of category creation in the B2B software space. On this week's episode, we have Paul Sebastian, CMO of Offsec, the world's fastest growing cybersecurity company and creator of the number one cybersecurity OS, Kali Linux, and Dan Fronin, CMO at Upkeep, top-rated software designed to revolutionize maintenance and asset management. Happy Friday, everyone. My name is Gil Alush. I'm the founder and CEO of Metadata, and this is episode, I think, 15 of Category Creators. I'm excited to have with me uh, Dan and Paul. Paul, maybe we start with you. Uh, can you give a quick uh, um, kind of introduction on yourself? Sure. Well, I don't know about quick, but I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. I'm a CMO <laughs> and GM, straddling the CMO and GM world for a long time at companies like Udemy and um, Tapless acquired by Disney and most recently in the cybersecurity space um, at Offsec. Wonderful. Oh, there. It, it could be a lot longer, but I'll pause Super there. quick. No, it is good. That's awesome. Uh, Dan, you're next. Uh, great to be here. So uh, Dan Fronin, I'm currently CMO over at a company called Upkeep. And uh, prior to that, I've really been doing a lot of demand gen and CMO gigs at companies like Aptis, Schedulo, uh, most recently over at Sendoso, and uh, having a blast doing what I'm doing now. Very cool. Uh, again, I'm very excited to have you both. Um, you know, when, when I started this, not that long ago, the idea was it, it came from... Uh, a webinar was, was about to do about category creation, mostly because I'm trying to create a category and I have no idea what I'm doing. So I wanted to <laughs> talk to, to smartphones like you. And, uh, and, and I think it was Manny Medina who told me, you know, just do a podcast. Everyone that does a podcast today, just do a podcast, it's a thing. So I, you know, converted it into a podcast. And fast forward a few, uh, a few episodes became, uh, became a thing of its own. Uh, and so we're going to spend some time on category creation, but I also want to want to ask you uh, maybe something uh, before before we get into that. Can you share from your career, uh, you know, a moment that you feel was your biggest win? Your biggest win doesn't have to be your existing company, but a moment that that you feel was a really big win for you as uh, as a professional, uh, you know, working in SaaS, working in startups. Maybe something that. Um, that other people don't don't know, not something obvious like uh, like an IPO, but a, a moment of of success. Dan, maybe we can start with uh, with you. Yeah, no, there's there's probably a couple of moments. I think the most recent moment was over at uh, Sendoso during the pandemic, and it was really just taking this pretty big uh, marketing mix that we had. We had just taken our Series B. We're putting a lot of chips on the table, as they say. Um, in in physical events, and we quickly had to pivot out of physical into into digital. And um, you know, I think to your point around category creation, a lot of that was creating a movement with our audience and and really, you know, choosing what everyone's common pain point was and how we could help solve it along with our partners. And we were really able to rally quite a few um, you know co brands to to create that ecosystem, and then. A lot of uh, marketers and sellers to to be with us on that journey and create uh, a community. So big win. Um, we're able to hit our metrics, of course, which makes it even better. Um, but yeah, that was probably one of my most uh, recent wins that I that I really look back on very fondly. Super cool. I love that you 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 brought it from a time of adversity. You brought a really big you know win moment. It's uh, always really nice to hear. Um, Paul, what about you? Do you have any? any First, I want to give Dan some props actually on what he did at at Sandoz. I think it's really impressive how he executed. I actually got to meet Dan while he was at Sandoz uh, and did a little bit of uh, advisory uh, there too. And um, it, it, it is very, very impressive. And I think in the on the topic of category creation, I, I give Dan a lot of props uh, for that. So well done, Dan. Very cool. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate uh, it. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, well well earned. You know, for me, I mean, I'll just start with you know a lot of gratitude. And I know it sounds cheesy, but I really mean it. I feel very lucky to have been part of some some great things. I've been part of, I think I've been through four acquisitions in my career. Um, and it, that's both really good and also very disruptive personally, because if you end up not staying on at the, at the acquiring company because of location or whatever, it's you know challenging. One of the things that comes to mind to me that maybe is sort of less obvious um, 
even I think with people that I work with, but at Udemy, you know, for me, Udemy, um, uh, going in there, you know, and, and basically being effectively the first hire sort of as a GM uh, in what was a very nascent kind of idea for a B2B SaaS subscription offering in an existing consumer transactional marketplace model um, was absolutely terrifying, right? Um, so I was very lucky on a couple levels to meet uh, or to have a couple early team members there um, that uh, not only were, were just very creative and very flexible and just great to work with and very welcoming, uh, the CEO at the time as well, just kind of I think gave me a lot of leeway to and patience really to figure out the go-to-market. And it's like, how the hell do you take an existing purely transactional business model that's also a two-sided marketplace, right? So they don't even own the content, but how do you then package it up and make effectively a SaaS subscription B2B offering for companies from that, right? Given that intrinsic, you know, two-sided marketplace model. And then further, the market space was so crowded with incumbents, both large and small. And so how do you, you know, take this existing brand that's known for one thing, extend it into B2B, it's the same company name, but how do you make a B2B division? How do you go to market in a way that is differentiated and sharp and pointed can get traction in a space that's already crowded? So all those challenges uh, at, at once, I think were really, were really tough and it was a thorny intellectual problem. I mean, I, I call this sort of the, a four P's problem really, you know, it's sort of like, how do you figure out your unique pricing place differentiation in that world? And for me, you know, thinking about that and again, working with some great people, coming up with a model that resulted in you, this unique hill that we figure out that we think we could, you know, could double down on and own. Um, for me, coming up with that, testing it, getting some early traction on it and validating that we had something unique and differentiated because we had everything else against us at the time, uh, including tiny budget, all that. And to have that start working was for me so satisfying and so rewarding. And um, I used to take a lot of personal pride in that. And I just feel like it was a great moment in the power of just positioning and differentiation and going to the, the, the core principles of, of business. You know, what unique hill can you own? How are you delighting customers in a unique and better way? Um, uh, how do you stand up from the competition and how do you articulate that in a very sharp, differentiated way in a crowded space? Um, I, I, I love that stuff. And in every role I've done since then, in particular, uh, I keep kind of drawing from that experience. So for me, that was, that was, that was a, a personal win. Nice. You use the word thorny. So both of you definitely are, are picking up big success from, from tough times. I think that's, that's the theme. Uh, I think we, we talked about it last episode as well. Um, that's cool. Thank, thanks for, for sharing. When you, think about, uh, when you think about times in your career where you grew the most, would you, would you agree that that was always uh, comes together with uh, a very painful time as well or, or not necessarily? For me, always, absolutely. Uh, the, 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 the hardest times, not just in work, but in, in, in life, actually, going through adversity in life, uh, whether it's a divorce or some big life change, your parents passing away, uh, or sometimes all those things sitting at the same time, as was the case in my case, and a tough job situation. Uh, those are the times actually where it's so painful and so visceral, but you know, you really learn the most. At least for me, that's, that's when I've, I've grown the most is when I'm outside my comfort zone. Yeah. Ah, love that. Cheers to that. Yeah. Learning the most outside All of- Are we going to drink now? All right. Absolutely. Cheers. For special times. For special times, sometimes tough. Uh, Dan, what about you? Do you also have that correlation between uh, tough times and growth times? Yeah, definitely. Definitely tough times. And I think the definition of tough times is sometimes it's not even adversity, right? It's, um, you know, you sometimes you get a fork in the road and one one path is super easy. It's familiar for you. <laughs> and the other is, you know what, I've never done that or it, that seems really scary, but I'm going to go down that path. It's going to be very painful. There's going to be trials and tribulations, but then you just come out of the other side as a, as a superhuman with a new strength. Right. And um, I think some of the the best people that I've seen that, that take that path, they they still on the very top, they look very cool, calm and collective and they're figuring it out and they're, you know, leveraging their networks and um, listening to podcasts and just, you know, doing everything they can to get there. And um, that's, that's probably more of the paths that I've taken, but definitely, uh, you know, agree with Paul, like nothing, 
nothing um, that you achieve is even worth achieving unless there's not some sort of pain associated. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big one. I love that. I, I this, it's a little masochistic, like you know, like you know, self harming when when you say those things. But it is the truth. I definitely found it as a as a pattern, especially people come on this web uh, this podcast that. Uh, th- th- there's a correlation between adversity and pain and growth. Uh, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to see that uh, the way the way people like you, for example, Dan uh, or Paul, think about adversity is from a completely different point of view. That some some think about it, you know, some think about adversity as like a misfortune, something that to be avoided, uh, you know. Or if there are two decisions, one of them is easy. It's just why why do, why do you keep talking? It's just like that's, that's, that's a the great one point. Take. That's a great point. And uh, you know, uh, I think Dan can speak to this as well. Perhaps even your most recent move, Dan. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I actually I, I get a strange perverse pleasure in putting myself into ridiculously uncomfortable new situations, uh, including my most you know recent. I mean, I'm I dove into to the cybersecurity space, which is quite possibly just the 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 most sort of inside baseball uh complex rarefied strange little world um again also completely terrifying but um i actually love doing that because i you know you 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 grow a lot and then when you put yourself into a lot of these these disparate situations that you you over time can start to connect the dots and connecting the dots i think laterally is for me has been one of the biggest benefits of working in, in, a, in a lot of different spaces and not kind of coming up through a very linear path. Um, if I just come up through a linear marketing path and the same types of companies the entire time, uh, I, I don't think I would have had the career experience I've had. And I don't think um, I would experience just a lot of the sort of highs and um, uh, I think dimensional life-changing experiences I've had. So I think um, I love doing disparate things and connecting the dots and finding the commonalities, the parallels and figuring out how to leverage those things. And you find so many of these things are actually the same. So you do find a lot of pattern recognition between experiences, even in completely disparate spaces. Um, so that's been a real insight. Yeah, I'd say for those that are listening, that's actually what Paul just gave you as a growth hack to your career. Um, a lot of people, um, you know, they see situations and they actually kind of shy away from it. But if you're just jumping into the situation, knowing that you have the support of um, whoever's asking you to get into that situation and you do your best, you're going to learn a new situation. You're going to have pattern recognition. And then all those patterns actually make you just able to handle more and more and more and more with, we all have the same 24 hours in our day, right? Um, it's, it's all it really is. It's, that's the great. Right on. That's right on, yeah. Love that. Uh, you seem like a well-rounded person. Sounds like professionally for sure, Paul. But uh, I also see. I think I see one on one end. I see two guitars, and on the other <laughs> end, I think I see the the baby uh, university. Ah, I think that's yes, how they busted. call it. Busted. Yes. That's, <laughs> that's this sort of strange dichotomy that I live in here: T- baby time versus music time versus career job stuff. Yeah, exactly. I could go into that, but. Yeah. That's the that's the beauty. Uh, I think that's the beauty in life. Uh, I would definitely want to get back into that uh, in a second. You talked a little bit about growth. Um, let's 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 see if we can correlate that to to category creation. How do you see the how, how do you see the component or the the idea the concept of category creation within the bigger paradigm of of company growth or startup growth? Um, whoever wants to start. Dan, you want to start with that one. Sure, happy to. I mean, I you know, I, I think category creation is such a it's such a um, polarizing topic. I'll say there's like, you know, this this whole school of thought that you need to go and create a net new category and um, create the movement around it. And then there's kind of another school of thought, and and I'm probably more on that school of thought where really for for the most part nothing in business is truly new anymore. It's more of you know taking disparate ideas and actually making it something new Um, there's obvious exceptions but you know when i think about category and the reason that you would do it for your company it's really because and and paul kind of talked about this when he was introducing himself it's you're taking um a concept and you're you're choosing the hill that you're going to occupy and you're creating the movement around which you're going to rally um the people that care the most deeply about the problem that you're solving so that you can differentiate from the pack. And that's really at, at its, uh, at its core fundamental. That's all it really is. And I, I think it's 
I think it's important for every company to have some sort of unique differentiator. They need to stand for something beyond um, a, a generic category name, and they need to stand for something beyond uh, making money. And that's really where category comes in. Is it's 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 a it's a movement uh, that should bind your company, your customers, and your employees. Yeah, I think that that's uh, spot on. Yeah, Dan, I I also think um, you know that's uh, such a, a great practical way of looking at it as well, because that's that's the truth, that's the the reality of it. And I think Gil, on one of your past episodes, you had Rob Henshaw from Cameo on there, and he said the same thing. Really, that you know, look, these things, if we're honest with ourselves, are not actually new, right? We're we're doing our best to delight customers and making the newness and the differentiation, the uh, differentiation around those things uh, unique and effectively, you know, can it be considered a new category or you creating something truly new that solves their pain or their delight in some way? That's really what matters there. It's probably not entirely new. I think sometimes also of the, the analog that Peter Thiel uses, I, I think, from his zero to one book, you know, the idea of a, you know, trying to create a category of one where effectively competition is for losers, right? Um, I really resonate with that a lot. It's really hard to do, right? It's extremely hard to do to 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 create a new category. Um, it on the surface intellectually, it is it's possible to think of many many new categories or spins on things, but where the rubber meets the road is. How are you finding a product market fit, creating something where there's an actual customer need, you know, again, a pain you're solving or a delight or aspiration that you're enabling around that new category. And, um, you know, so many ideas have been tried and done uh, at varying degrees of execution. So sometimes what you find is there's just been great ideas out there, great entirely you know, new categories where there is very little competition because maybe they haven't thought about it in 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 the right way, or they haven't executed well as a result of that, um, or the technology wasn't there yet. Sort of that mix of technology and and a culture hadn't caught up to that point. So, you know, for example, you know, could something like a, an Instagram exist prior to iPhone? Of course not, right? So there are things that are enabled by technology that are probably the biggest vectors that produce new potential categories to be created. And so I think along every technological point in the sort of Moore's law evolution of technology, you have new categories made possible by not just one technology, but by the convergence, right? By the application of multiple disparate spaces into, um, into one new packaged offering. The, you know, the iPhone moment was of course one of those, right? Um, and there are many, many others. So to me, that's where that's where there are a lot of the true new categories of one that, that Teal talks about are enabled is by you know new technology vectors uh, producing new technological capabilities that, that are coupled with sort of consumer or business services from other disciplines that result in a net new kind of uh, category. And again, you, you know, you see this again and again and again. So that's what I try to look for. Again, it's it's hard to do, especially if, if you're in an existing company. You're like, how can I create a new category? You're, you're sort of working within the confines a bit of the playing field that you're in. But I do think that, for example, you can use the one thing that is changing that, that is in your power, and that is new technology. So let's just take VR as an example. VR is, is a much lamented example right now. But let's just say something like VR that is emergent and relatively new in terms of the consumerization, something like that, not actually VR probably, but something like that, you could say, okay, how can my existing company leverage something new in this new medium that is growing and nascent or possible? How could we maybe combine that with something else we're doing to create a net new experience or service on top of our core value prop, right? Um, so I think there's sort of these more of these extensions like that that are enabled by new technologies coupled with your existing value prop that can, that can produce new uh, categories. We both talked about uh... You know, like, first of all, it sounds like it's almost you start with the idea of I want to create a category because of whatever reason I was told or I read this book or it's a cool thing to do or I'm going to be on a podcast, so I better know something about it. <laughs> but but sometimes maybe it's, it's if what, I, what I hear that sometimes we start from the wrong place. Like, do you are you creating like truly are you creating a category? Have you if you have been in a situation where you joined a startup, you know, you, you joined or created or. You know, I've been in a situation where you're at the early stage, sure, there is product market fit, uh, and you've been asked to create a category, uh, and you, you go through and you think, 
I'm not going to create a category. It's not the best move for this company. It's going to be just a shit show, like a better, you know, big strategic initiative for the to the wrong direction, or uh, or, or something of of that of that sense. Have you been in that situation and and uh, did some analysis to see are you extension category or are you completely new? Figured out you're more of an extension and and took back a few steps. Did that happen? I, I have been in that situation, and um, you know, I. I always, I always look at like, okay, what category are we trying to claim we are, but then what category are we truly a part of? And, you know, usually my strategy there is um, either it, it's, it's two things. One is, okay, we can go ahead and coin this new category to differentiate ourselves, but then I'm still going to be trying to be as relevant as I can for people that are looking in the existing categories where I show up. Or, you know, the second strategy is, you know, become an aggregator of categories and, and say, you know, I think, you know, Paul brought up an interesting point that I could extend on is a lot of new categories are actually just bringing together different technologies that could be part of a, of a business process that makes a ton of sense to bring together, right? So you could also, you know, look at it from an aggregation and, you know, tell the story. If you, if you have capabilities in two or three different categories, you, you extend that way. Um, but I do think that those are the situations that I've been in where I've, where I've, um, you know, kind of circumvented the, the proverbial shit show of a category that might not make sense. Um, because I think as we all know, um, you know, depending on what market you're in, if, you know, either, either the analysts are going to tell you what your category is, if those people matter, or um, people aren't really going to care if the analysts don't care because they're looking for you, how they're going to look for you. And you really need to optimize for that. So I think it's, uh, it's got to be in the middle. The, you said a few things that 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 uh, require follow-up. First of all, uh, you were a little vague about that experience. Can you share about that experience that you had personally, or is it too, too, too soon? No, 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 no. I'm not happy to. It's uh, um, at Scheduler, we had a situation like that where, you know, we had field service management capabilities um, and we had workforce management capabilities, but we fundamentally believed as a company that that field service management was optimizing for the wrong thing and we were more optimizing for the mobile workforce. So we went out with mobile workforce management, but in that world, um, the uh, analysts saw mobile workforce management as an extension of field service management. So we were already at a disadvantage trying to flip that understanding up against some really big incumbent solutions in the market. Um, so the strategy was, yeah, we're mobile workforce management, it's differentiated, but we also need to show up in field service and we need to show up in workforce management. and. Um, that's still the strategy that they're employing today with the deskless workforce. I mean, they just raised seventy million dollars from SoftBank uh, yesterday for their Series C. So, congrats, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. When when you this when you decided or when you found out that hey maybe maybe it's part of the of of the larger category, did you get pushback? Did, did, did was there was there an intent or interest to try to do it anyway, or did you start making moves and saw red the red flags or? How, how did that pan out? Because I know that's something that is not popular. Talking about tough deci decisions, sometimes you're, you know, you, you, put it, you put an idea in your head, like, you know, Sendoso, for example, um, thought about category creation from day one. You know, the day they, they raised their seed, uh, they, you know, there, there was the intent to create a category. Um, so did, did, you, did you have to kind of figure out some of that? I mean, it, it's interesting because at Schedulo, um, the CEO was just adamant that, you know, we are different, right? And he had that vision. And um, I remember when I first started, we were going through what I'm sure Paul's been through a million times. You're on a whiteboard for a couple of days trying to pull out um, all of the secret sauce that is in this mad scientist's mind because they're building this thing, right? Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yep. And as we're, as we're unpacking it, um, I was convinced after like these sessions, I'm like, okay, this is different than field service management. And here's why, but I, it's definitely something he had to take me on the journey of. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been an effective marketer for him, right? I needed to truly believe and buy into it as well. Um, so I, I would, I would think that you know whether it's the founder telling you that you need to do category creation, or in my case at Upkeep right now, I'm about to reposition a little bit and and do some of that. Um, either way, there's going to be some convincing from one side um, if, if that's going to be a healthy relationship and if that's going to be a successful endeavor in the market. Um, let's, let's change gears for a second. Um, first of all, let's have a drink. 
I'm gonna have to pour myself a little bit. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, gentlemen. When you think about, uh, you know, you've done this quite a few times, both of you, uh, in, in well-known growth startup for acquisitions, Paul, Paul you mentioned. Uh, what, is, what is an absolute truth that you read about in, you know, like the tech uh, publishers on LinkedIn, people post it about all the time, or, or you know, something that you hear in one of those uh, tech conferences that we used to go to, maybe maybe it's coming up, it's coming back, like Saster, uh, that you know is a complete bullshit, that you've heard it like five times and you're like, no, I've been there like more than once. I know for a fact, this is not true. It's a nice story, definitely not true. Kind of like when you see the overnight success in TechCrunch that people think like, oh my God, this, this huge round of funding, it's amazing. They just did it in two months and they don't know there's like a convertible note from the previous year. The valuation is like, uh, you know, it's different, so on and so forth. So yeah. Um, yeah, maybe you can start, Paul, get us started. Hmm. I don't have anything specific. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that bother me, if I'm totally honest, that Absolutely. you see on LinkedIn uh, in particular. Uh, I mean, you know, a lot of it, look, I mean, for many of us, I think it's kind of painful sometimes to open up LinkedIn anyway, because so much of it is just posturing. And it's like, if you're not posting a lot, you feel like somehow you're not part of the, the, you know, the thing. Of course, the reality is, no, maybe you're actually working and making real traction. And you're simply just not talking about it or bragging about it. Um, and then it really becomes a means to an end. And, you know, just, you know, one of your, your promotion channels. Um, one of the things that I, I think, I still think that brand and word of mouth are underappreciated. Um, just shockingly so still in this, uh, still this over quantization, uh, sorry, over quantification um, of, of everything, which actually is, is actually the right thing to do, but sometimes they do it in lieu of um, the power of attributing growth and success through proxy measures, right? And measures that are sometimes, um, uh, softer measures or uh, measures that you don't get a number from measuring. Um, there's so many great examples of brands that get so much affinity and attach from the number of touches that you can't count, right? So you know, if you think you're counting touches, oh, it takes 12 touches, we, you know, we've calculated to you know, get a conversion. Um, it's like, is it really 12? No, of course, it's probably a lot more than that. It's all the touches you can't count that can contribute to brand word of mouth. And frankly, just a whole lot of, um, of cause and effect uh, out there that is so indirectly uh, measurable through proxy only that until we get to a point where we have such a, a massive data set that we can truly factor in everything, which of course is like this asymptotic goal, um, I think this over-reliance on only the channels you can measure and the pressure now that CMOs get in particular um, to, to quantify everything ends up being the case where the CFO and the CEO often are, they're, they're put in a position where they're trying to effectively cover their hides, right? And, and so they'll, they're forced to rely on only quantitative measures that you can directly measure and attribute um, and, and, and I think just because of the, the changes in the operating model, especially in venture-backed companies, um, there just isn't any room for anything un attributable directly. So I just think that's a long-winded way of saying, you know, brand word of mouth and some of the intangibles and the software measures, um, I just think are still among the most powerful in the world. There's great examples of that. The best brands of all time, I think Apple, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, so that always bothers me. People who <laughs> such a linear road to myopic way that they look like this. It's like a flashlight in the dark and you're looking at one little part of the brush and the, and, and the road in front of you. And you don't realize, you know, what is just beyond that simply because you can't yet see it. Um, you know, I think of the great uh, Carl Sagan quote is just, just because we haven't yet found evidence that something doesn't mean, it is it, not evidence that the thing does not exist, right? Um, of course, you can do that in, in the inverse and you can actually make crazy outlandish claims by using that same 
that same axiom, but but uh, maybe but that's okay. You get the point, right? You get the point. Uh, yeah, it's a good point. So branding matters uh, in B two B, matters in startups. That is very quantitative. Uh, it was a long answer, so you have to to finish your drink. Uh, cheers. It was very insightful. I, I'll be punished for my sins of for your insight. And Gil's uh, pretty hardcore on this. I'm just trying to drink, and I don't want to be by myself, so I'm going to make up. Thank God, it's good wine, actually. Thank you. <laughs> I, I think it was uh, so interesting, though, because what you said is something that uh, is completely true. Like, you, you, I don't know how personal it was for you, but I think uh, many marketers share that, uh, that, that, that stance that branding is, not, is significantly underutilized in the tech world because, unfortunately, tech world have lots of engineers like me that have a hard time uh, just, like, making the left brain hemisphere see the value in it until we we grow up and then then we see the value in it i think it takes some time you have to go through some experiences um to see the value and you it may not be in your dashboard right away not in a way that you're accustomed to to your to your point um but, I but you think know, what, what's really really important though to know is is the the yeah. opposite of that is maybe where marketing sort of sort of came out of and and actually has a very fair i think criticism against it where sure. you had this sort of former sort of model of a cmo who is this sort of brand-centric person levitating on a purple carpet like a don draper like, no it's it's all going to work out man kind of thing so you know that 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 doesn't work either and i i've never been more quantitative in my role than i have in in recent years in fact literally every month it's like i literally want to measure everything and i actually want to get even better and bigger data sets do even more sophisticated you know analysis on how these are working so let me be very very clear about the, the importance of that Absolutely. but still at that there is still so much you simply just can't measure yet right i think actually predictive analytics and ai actually would be helpful here on the extrapolation front i know Gil, it's something that that you've done a lot of speaking about as well um so i think you're onto a very very uh, important area for helping address this problem that I'm talking about to, to simply get more data and get better data, um, including predictive data going forward. I think, I, think it's the, I think it's a very important point because it's the ultimate combo between uh, right, you know, the, the right brain, the left brain. There is the Don Draper that, that walks around yeah, with, with right. a few slides and convinces everyone about their idea. And by doing that, it sometimes creates a reality. Yeah. that makes right. what was impossible possible. Right. It may look very expensive because you have to spend 5 million immediately, but it might not be as, 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 as expensive if you were to do it with a trial and error, quantitative A-B testing approach, which would take you there right. uh, in just a different, different path. Anyway, so, um, so I, think, I think there is definitely something to it. And I think combining the quantitative, uh, you know, multivite experimentation approach with taking a, a full blow and trying to just hit hard one time with a big bet, there is a, there is space for both. I, I think that you sometimes cannot make uh, exponential growth without the, you know, one or the other, but you also can't be predictable and stable without, uh, without the other. So um, super cool. Dan, I saw you unmuting. Do, do, you have a, do, you have, do you have one an opinion on that or do you want to add something on your own? I, I do have an, oh, I mean, I, I've got one that I'd add. Um, which kind of dovetails into what Paul was saying. I, I, the thing that I think irks me the most is when people are out um, touting like the playbook for this or the playbook for that. And um, you know, I, I think it, particularly in startups, it's so important to come in with a, a beginner's mind and look Absolutely. at the, yeah, the unique situation, the customer, the existing team, and really understand what intrinsically makes that situation unique and try to build it in a unique, unique way. And, you know, if you're a CMO, obviously you have a million different plays, right? But don't build the playbook for the last company, you know, take some of your plays and put them in, learn some new plays and, and build it that way. So I just, I can't stand it when someone tries to sell me a playbook. It just, oh. uh, it just goes against everything I believe in. <laughs> I need a drink to that because Dan, that's a, such a better point and better topic than the one that I brought up. I think that bugs the crap out of me too. And frankly, you're the only other CMO I've heard actually make that point. I, I agree with you a thousand percent and it bugs the hell out of me too. People think that there is literally a playbook that you can apply, uh, you know, to the same, you know, to, to companies across the, 
the you know very very different journeys and teams and, and and I mean there's commonalities and there's dots that you can connect. Totally. But taking a rote playbook approach, uh, let's just say that I've lived that in my career where someone else really really had a strong strong belief in playbooks and uh, yeah I mean it was a total disaster. Um, and it's just caused a lot of pain. And also all of the processes that fall out of that in that playbook, we do it this way and you've got to do it this way. And the terms we're going to use are this and this and this, even getting really rote and, and sort of pedantic about that is just, oh, uh, is painful. Every case is different. Every single situation is different, even in the same space. If I were to go to a different cybersecurity company, right, um, would I apply the same techniques? Oh, my God. No, I mean, Look at the team. Look at the unique, you know, attributes um, of of the space. The pain you're solving in that company could be could seem similar on the outset, but actually be completely different. Yeah. Um, so I love Dan that you've taken that approach, and I think that that speaks to why you, you've uh, done well. Preach it. Let's let's cheers to that. <laughs> cheers to that. <laughs> cheers, gentlemen. I think it's interesting how the more experienced people that uh, you speak with, the more of a beginner's mind and humble approach that they have. And the least, you know, like when you're, you know, when you're younger or starting, just, just starting out and had one win, you sometimes have the misconception of this is the way, you know, like it's basically, I've, I figured it out. This is this formula. I'm just going to rinse and repeat. And of course, that's not the way. I mean, by definition, a startup is doing something different. Uh, some some innovative approach. So um, wonderful. Let's change change gears again um, and talk about something that was maybe um, you can choose if it was your your biggest, but definitely something that was top three of your hashtag fail moments as a, as a CMO. Something that you just like you just fucked it up completely, and you just woke up in the middle of the night or the next morning and like fuck, I did this. It was not good. Yeah, on the spot here, Dan. Anything that comes to your mind? Maybe I'll, well, I'll, just, I'll just give you a tactical, a tactical one, right? Um, I was at a, a company that I won't name, and um, we were we were pivoting from the Salesforce ecosystem to the Microsoft ecosystem. And uh, as you can imagine, our entire database was really predicated on Salesforce and Salesforce customers. And as we were building our our relationship with Microsoft. Um, we, we decided to do like some sort of joint go-to-market campaign with them. And uh, we sent an email out that was all Salesforce specific, the footer, the whole nine um, out to all of these Microsoft people and, uh, <laughs> and almost damaged the relationship to like the, the point of terminal. And uh, that got all the way um, to the, to the very top. So from a tactical standpoint, that was a big screw up. Um, not sure if I could learn any lessons on that one other than <laughs> double check your segment <laughs> in your database. <laughs> oh man, that's a tough one. I can, I can, I can imagine the conversation with the CMO, CEO, you know, that's a classic marketing ops fluke, uh, but a big one. So nice. That's a good share. Thank you. It happens to all of us. <laughs> on the same line, uh, sort of, I, in some ways, less of a direct, sort of CMO kind of work, thing like that, but, but related very, very much. Uh, my brother, Nick, and I have a very surreal sense of humor and a relationship that goes back to our childhood around very surreal humor, okay? Just very, very strange, surreal humor. Something we started, you know, that, that we started as kids that we, we continue to this day. We'll send each other, you know, with our iPhones, of course, you can hold down and, and do a little voice snippet, right? And you can text it to your Yourself. So sometimes I will send my brother Nick, at, you know, you know, late at night, um, sometimes after a glass or, or two of wine, uh, something very, very surreal, sometimes just completely inappropriate and, and, and very strange. Uh, that's part of our sort of ongoing multi-year humorous thread. Well, I actually did that one time um, to a customer and actually didn't do it just one time, happened a couple different times. It also <laughs> happened one time I sent one um, to a, a team member of mine, actually who was on my team reporting to me. Uh, and then uh, also uh, I did that similarly, it was actually a written text um, to uh, my CEO. So these are all, imagine these all being very strange kind of humor, just out of context, just imagine you know, you're uh, someone working for me on my team, for example, and you get just the most absurd, you know, voice snippet from me, from my phone number, and you know it's from me. And you're just like, what the hell? 
what, what the hell's going on? Imagine <laughs> a customer getting that. I've been very lucky to have recovered from those uh, totally embarrassing situations by literally just being brutally honest and saying, I'm so sorry. My brother Nick and I had this really weird humor thing going way back to our childhood. Um, I'm not going to explain it further, but that's what happened. Uh, and they were extremely <laughs> understanding every single time. But oh my God, it could have been really, 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 really bad, right? Oh man, that um, sounds, like, sound, yeah. sounds like I, I want to sign up and, and see those, uh, those weird surreal... Uh... We have, so we've actually thought about actually, you know, some of them, you know, we'll do different voices and things like that as well. Characters from movies from, you know, right, whatever. Uh, as part of that. So we, we thought about, is there, is there a potential, you know, sort of surreal humor market, much like an onion kind of thing, but for this kind of thing, we, we've actually thought about doing something with it at one point, because it was such a, such a large body of work at this point, right? Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. But it's, it's, it's definitely gotten me in trouble. Again, everyone's been very, very accommodating. Uh, but there's been also you know, work, works groups too, you know, uh, mail sent to customers, certainly um, newsletters that have gone out where, uh, I should have checked something and something changed last minute and I didn't get a chance to approve it. And it's something that like, literally like our CEO, you know, and I talked about not putting out there and it, sure enough, it comes out like just completely, you know, embarrassing stuff like that. That just, that just happens. Well, put me on the, put me on the list for uh, recipients who are getting texted and are supposed to get, uh, that sounds like the, the, best, <laughs> the best gift. Yeah. Uh, you know, you did remind me, Paul, with your uh, words real, that you did mention that you had some surreal experiences, both personally and professionally uh, during your career. And so I think this is the magical moment to get back to it. When you were saying that, what were you thinking about? I don't know if it was anything in, in, in particular, but you know- um, There was definitely something in particular because I asked you at that moment and you said, yeah. One of the benefits of being a thousand years old, like I am, where like I'm actually <laughs> older than Yoda or, you know, Bilbo Baggins with the ring and all that stuff. One of those benefits is I was around during the dot-com 1.0 here in the Valley, right? So right at the dawn of it in 95, you know, co-founding a company, um, uh, you know, I both good surreal, like I found myself in meetings back then in 95, right at the dawn of the web with Mark Andreessen and Jim Barksdale and Jim Clark and, and Thomas Doldy, who I was, who was my, my co-founder um, at the time doing this, this interactive audio startup for the web, like back during these sort of halcyon days, right, of the dot-com 1.0. Sounds amazing. Really, really, really good surreal and, and memories and things and just, you know, seeing Mark Andreessen at that early stage as a kid, basically, in that context. Just really, really cool stuff like that um, that I, I got to experience back then. But also the other side of the surreal, some of the dot-com 1.0 sort of parties and work trips where you heard that the purse that some high executive was, you know, uh, doing something inappropriate with uh, someone maybe on your own team, that kind of stuff, just really, you know, crazy stuff like that, that you realize is actually not so crazy. And, and when you see that kind of stuff continue, um, uh, even into the kind of current current day in the valley, you know, you realize that um, tech has changed a lot since since the 1.0 days. But um, there's still just a lot of weird stuff that happens, right? But also, I think really good, healthy, surreal stuff like you know being part of um, you know working with you know just amazing visionary people and getting to partake in discussions and. Um, you know, conceiving the future um, and then being part of building that. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's sort of the awesome side of, of Surreal. I also, for me, I'm weird in that I didn't come, I, I had a very strange background. I actually had a music career, believe it or not, in the early 90s to even further date myself. It. So, you know, I, I had a band that had, that had 15 minutes of fame with the MTV video and a couple of hit singles and things like that. Um, so, you know, I, I had that experience. That was also very, very surreal. And to kind of come out of that and some of those uh, from, from, from that world and get sort of, um, I would say, disenchanted with the, the horrible music world, especially at the time, and go into tech and go into the heart of sort of then the dot-com kind of 1.0, um, that was really, really exciting because it literally was sort of the merging in some ways of what was possible then through early technology in the mid 90s and the fusing of how do we combine media so things like music and video right with tech at that time in a low bandwidth context that was sort of the the foundation of this company beatnik that uh, like i, I co-founded um with uh, thomas dolby and um 
you know, I think that was such a wild west and the feeling in the valley then and the types of characters you encountered in the valley then couldn't be more different than today. And I don't want to sound like some old guy who sort of laments, oh, it was so great back then. But the tech world now and Silicon Valley now uh, just bears almost no resemblance um, to the sort of wide-eyed, really exciting, really, I think, kind of healthy um, uh, Wild West that existed back then. And there's still yet, it's, it's paradoxical because there's more exciting stuff happening than ever before now. And the convergence of multiple different technologies and the realization of all things that we've only dreamed about back then are real now. But I think that the mindset, the, the kind of the cultural ethos around what's possible through technology now, through the generation that has come up being you know, born with it, is, uh, is, is just is fundamentally different. And I really feel like we've lost something. I feel that you, we don't have the same true kind of wide-eyed, big, long-term, exciting vision that anything is possible like we used to have. And it really is so much more focused on monetization, exits, um, and sort of the materialistic sort of tangibles of that than the sort of revolutionary stuff. So I'll stop ranting, but that's something that again, the 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 one benefit of being a thousand years old is having is connecting the dots between now and then, um, and seeing that stark difference. Sounds like you missed the old Burning Man days. Uh, of no, Silicon it's Valley, it's, it's which... not that either. It's definitely not a Burning Man type of thing either. No. It's not the hey man. No, no, like... I simpli- I think I simplified it too much. Forgive me. I no, think, no, no. Uh, yeah. I think you're talking about the days in which uh, money was not as big of. Uh, component in innovation and you could just go right. wild uh and and really that's that's what i meant so i think i, I share i, I sh- you know i shared the i wasn't there you know i wish yeah. i was i think it sounds amazing. you weren't even born yet gil i was born but but i was pretty <laughs> yeah. young like a, a young child in in my hometown <laughs> unfortunately i didn't have access to, to the valley but i guess i should have but uh it sounds like a magical time when you when you guys got started or Everyone got started, and there was less less of a structure and commercialism being put on yeah. that. But look, a lot of the reality, like you said, a lot of the reality that we live in today is thanks thanks to that wild right. innovation right. that that maybe wouldn't be here otherwise. Yeah, and I, I think things like like blockchain and 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 crypto are an example of some of the most it, it truly what to me the closest thing to feel it feels like the wild west that existed back then mm-hmm. and the most fertile potential change that can ripple through every fat you know little tiny fat um a facet of society over time i do see that with blockchain and crypto uh can we bring some of that uh, magical environment back in your opinion what's that sorry if should we and how how can we bring some of that environment back to 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 startups and innovation Oh, boy, I, if it's I, not just the valley, you know? Yeah, no, I think there's, uh, uh, you know, multiple things. I think, I think that actually the valley, you know, there's, there's been a bit of, of, a, of an exodus starting a bit. People like yourself in Miami and other places. Uh, not that there's a, a, a greener grass per se. We're going to say, oh, yeah, it's in Austin or Miami. It's less about location now. Really what's exciting is decentralization in general. And I mean that with a capital D. So global, you know, the, the idea now that finally... And the pandemic really sort of accelerated this finally and made this sort of real and practical. You can truly be anywhere in the world and be working together, you know, at, at full clip with completely decentralized teams. And I think this is part of the blockchain movement and, and also uh, the shift to more and more remote work. So I think that that's really, really exciting. Um, I think that Silicon Valley um, it, it ends up unfortunately breathing a lot of its own exhaust. And so, you know, there's a lot of, um, of, of things and sort of norms and the, the playbook-itis, I think to kind of quote Dan a little bit about the playbook thing, too many playbooks, too many, you know, this, this, it's so well trodden now, the path to VCs and get the attention of, okay, the top tier VCs versus the lower ones. And, and, and so that entire playbook and all the sort of smarminess that goes into it, um, you know, back, back, in, the, back in the day, you know, you didn't have the the like the city and, and the area just rife with just tech bros and broettes everywhere. And I I, I hate to paint just a, a stark cultural picture, but it's so there's a lot of homogenized thinking um, and uh, just a, a lot of cultural things and a lot of sort of movements that have all converged that I think make it for um, uh, the antithesis of an open 
uh, environment for radical ideas. I think, unfortunately, ideas now become quickly politicized and that you attach a cultural stigma to. And if it doesn't fit into your unique tribe or trope, um, uh, you, you know, you're immediately labeled and, and you're put into something. And I'm not talking about right wing or left wing politics at all, actually. I think actually, um, unfortunately, you've just had such a factionalization um, of people and culture and processes. And so unlike the Wild West sort of days, now the sort of well-trodden, overly well-trodden and the norms and all the stuff that goes with it, including a lot of the political stuff and the cultural stuff, uh, makes for a, an environment where I don't see a lot of innovation kind of happening from here. And I think what we're seeing is in things like blockchain, the innovation is not happening here. It's happening elsewhere. In fact, it's happening in other countries and places. And I think, you know, U.S. in general has also been very um, generally incredibly slow uh, to embrace uh, crypto. Uh, there are a lot of challenges around that and rightly so in some cases, but um, crypto is the one thing, I mean, blockchain generally is, is, is one of the, the few areas I think that has the potential to completely transform the entire VC and company funding model on its head to how people are empowered and capitalized to do what they want to do, to even how people just get compensated and actually derive meaning from their work. It has that, that one, you know, that it cut like a heat seeking missile through a lot of those things over time. And I, th I think it will actually happen no matter what. Um, and I think that's gonna have profound changes on places like the Valley and also cities in general. I think um, uh, the, the, the role and the purpose of cities um, is gonna radically change. And for unfortunately for many cities, not in a good way, it's gonna create even more economic disparity. And I think you'll have increased you know, extreme polarization between effectively uh, wealthy decentralized people who can live anywhere they want in the world who are tech educated and, and uh, right. And then you'll have sort of everybody else. Um, so I, I do worry about the, the stratification getting just far, 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 far worse as well as, as part of this. So th there's definitely pros and cons by the way to this. Um, so I'll pause there. I'm, I'm ranting too much. I'll let, I'll let Dan weigh in here. Uh, the only question is interesting. Yeah, the Good question time. I have is, Paul, when's the book coming out? Because I will read that book. Like, <laughs> you're, you're, I, was, I was about to I say I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote for for Paul when he's <laughs> oh, when he's going out there. Uh, yeah, you know, just to add a plus one to, Thank you. to everything you said. Well, well I, I'm echoing a lot of what what other people say. I, I'm no right. This is not about me at all. This is about observing and connecting dots between movements and plotting curves over time and extrapolating forward. I'm a bit of a futurist. Um, as you might have guessed. And, and so I like to sort of plot where things are going. I do a lot of reading um, and I'm well connected to, uh, to be lucky to be, to be well connected to a lot of people who are, are really, you know, great thinkers. And so um, I'm just basically part of that. And uh, I, I both excited about what's coming, but also worried about it as well. And um, so, you know, um, I, I hopefully can be some small part of a, a solution um, to, you know, for good and to make things uh, uh, go well as opposed to poorly. But there, yeah, there's some dystopian realities that are coming our way in the U.S. in particular, and particularly in large cities, um, that I think are that people are not talking about enough. Um, and it's going to be, it's going to be big. It's going to disrupt everything. Absolutely. Let's, let's do a, a quick cheer on that. Yeah, we'll on the, on the futuristic. That. that said, I will say, I do think we will prevail. Uh, I think what you just said Humanity is humanity will prevail. Yes. Absolutely, excuse my language, but not really. Uh, it it is absolutely going to happen, um, and I think it's a very interesting topic uh, that is not talked about enough, like you just said. So Great. thank you for thank you for saying that. Thank you for letting me <laughs> I think I think that that is that is uh, that doesn't happen enough. So thank you for that. Uh, then, what the is there is uh, I'll start with you because you know. Often it happens that I'm having a lot of time, a lot of fun, and this is one of them uh, mm -hmm. where we're getting over the time. Uh, if there is one thing that you'd like to leave the audience with, uh, a piece of advice that you know to be true, something for either the technical founders and CEOs who don't always see the light earlier in their career or to uh, CMOs who join a company at the right time, any piece of advice that you'd like to share with them? Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, think about the long game. Uh, I think, uh, and it kind of dovetails into everything we've been talking about, right, is, um, you know, yes, be myopically focused on what you're trying to achieve, but also open up the aperture and make sure that you're looking around you. 
and um, and take the time to to really look and understand and be futuristic plus in the moment, and um, and don't take it too seriously. I mean, tomorrow's always another day, and um, you know, eight hours of sleep and um, a few glasses of water does everyone really good, and you come in the next day with a fresh head. So, just keep at it and do it. Well, Dan, that's awesome. I, I, I love what you just said. That is, um, it's just extremely kind of refreshing and practical to hear that actually. I agree completely. Very light and, and needed advice. Um, Paul, anything you want to leave the, 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 the audience with one, one piece of advice that you think matters the most? Yeah, you know, I think um, it's something we touched on a bit earlier, uh, especially if someone's kind of coming up in marketing and you know, aspiring to be a CMO at some point or, you know, really a, in any kind of leadership function, you know, in a company. Um, I think you said it very well earlier, Gil, that, you know, uh, and, and, and Dan too, you know, not take a linear path. Don't feel constrained or boxed in that I've got to just go directly up the same chain. I need to go from this marketing manager position to be a marketing director. And I need to go from director to senior director. And, then I, and that's going to somehow be this linear path to CMO. Um, most of the successful CMOs that I know, A, did not take that path actually, right? Um, they were able to actually get other related experiences, often business experience, basically managing, owning a PL in some case, I think is very, very helpful. Um, and getting exposure to different parts of, of marketing. But at the end of the day, I mean, all the stuff we're trying to do here, we're just basically trying to, you know, solve someone's pain or enable their delight or aspiration and find the shortest path to get that cust prospective customer to get excited about that or, or, or become aware of that in the sharpest, most simple way possible, right? That's really what we're trying to do here. And all of the mechanics and machinery and sort of pomp and circumstance around that thing, these should be looked at as tools that are in support of you trying to achieve that end. And I think a lot of marketers and people, um, especially if they're aspiring up, they think that they've got to become expert in all of the tools or they get too caught up in the, in like the Marcom or the, uh, the tech stack, right? So they'll get too fixated on, on process and on, on the machinery of it, sort of, um, you know, there's a great quote by Seneca. I'm a big, big uh, Stoic fan. You know, love of bustle is not industry. And I think that that is so salient because people get so caught up in the work and the actions of doing these things. And well, I'm doing this, I'm using this channel now. I'm using this for this and this. And they, they miss the forest for the trees of what they're actually trying to achieve. And so I think you can take a much simpler view at, where are you trying to go? What are you trying to get a customer to do? Um, and uh, and you can get those kinds of experiences across you know a range of different roles and just life experiences too, and become capable and find real world proof points where you can show that you know how to do that. And I, I think experiences like that and thinking like that kind of from the, the outcome, from the end state of what you want the customer or person to do is, um, is just a, a, a much simpler and, and kind of, more empowering way to look at this. And then everything else kind of falls out of that as opposed to the inverse, which is focus on lots of tactics and tools and your stack and following some linear path up the chain. Um, you know, so uh, I'm like an extreme, an extreme example of, 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 of that working, but also really the best CMOs and, and CEOs I know um, also have generally taking a non-linear path like that and focus on results, focus on, on outcomes. So. That's what I, I, I would leave people off. Feel free to take like a, a year off and go and explore and uh, do different things. Um, do a completely dis totally disparate role in space. It's okay. There isn't some like some person watching you saying they're going to judge you. Like you, they worry about their LinkedIn. Oh my God, all this gap on my LinkedIn for six months. Like, oh my God, what could you do in six months with, with your time and your life experience that could contribute to you being more effective in a role you take after that. It's like the dots connect, the experiences compound. So um, I, I wish people would just take a much fresher look and be less scared to take chances. A bit, again, like you both said actually multiple times during this. Love it. Uh, hey, don't be scared to take change, change, changes and, and chances and maybe take some time off, uh, some travel time. You said the experiences compound. I think that's that's an important, important sentence. Uh, Paul. 
Sorry, please. Paul for president. That's all I'm going to say. I'm, I'm serious. I know. Let's start with governor just to like increase the chances. Let's just start with governor and then right after the, the president uh, will follow. I feel like we, we share some of the values. Uh, that is Paul, uh, really generous. I will run against Trump. How about that? Uh, yeah, you do. You. <laughs> Paul, Dan, I really enjoyed having both of you on Thank the podcast. You. You're, you're very wise and I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, and you're Likewise. also very genuine and authentic. So... Thank you for sharing your your life and experiences with us. It was awesome. I think it was very, very interesting. And uh, that's it. I wish you Thank a you. wonderful end of, uh, end of your work week. Hopefully not too much work. I know, Paul, you have a little bit of work done. Dan, hopefully not too much. I've been working here shortly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. Good luck with those. And uh, hey, have a great weekend. Thank you, you again. Too. For, Thank for you both, being, guys. Great seeing you both, by the way. Thank you. Take care. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed today's discussion and we'll tune in again. Find all the B2B Category Creators episodes at metadata.io. And if you have any feedback, topics, or would like to be a guest on the show, please reach out. 